0: Uh, let's bow our heads and uh, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning, and thank you again for this beautiful weather outside. Uh, Lord, we're blessed. I know there are parts in this country who are just snowed in. Uh, Lord, they're having a lot of um, weather issues, and, and Lord, here we are in 70-degree weather, blue skies, and Lord, we just thank you. Thank you so much, Lord. Most of all, we thank you for our time together, that we can come and hear your word, and we do pray your Holy Spirit would speak, and speak into our hearts, and our minds, and our ears, May we hear you into our lives, speak into our lives, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So uh, today's, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be going over after service, Uh, oops, sorry, there you go. Uh, we're going to be after service. We're going to be cleaning out some of the our, our stuff in the in the different areas. And I imagine having been here for about five uh, about five years or so, you're going to accumulate some things, right? And uh, it reminded me of growing up of uh, having those family cleanup days. Have you ever had those as a kid, right? Those family cleanup days where you know. It was a day designated to do a thorough cleaning of the house, right? Fond memories? Yeah, no, right? You wake up in the morning and it's like, what has gone into my parents, right? Storm into your room, all right, wake up, it's time to clean, right? And it's always on when? Saturday morning, right? When it's the day you get to sleep, and then your parents come, or usually it's kind of mom, I think, right? Goes in and wakes everybody. It is time to clean. And I remember we've had those growing up. And we cleaned things that I never thought we needed cleaning before. You know? We would clean, like, windowsills. I'm like, I never cleaned that windowsill before. And you look, and you're like, oh, I guess it needs cleaning. It's, like, black. And then when you clean, it's, like, all silverly shiny. I'm like, hmm, Okay. Right? You clean corners that have been dusty and collecting spider webs and stuff. And we would clean not only the windows, but we'd clean the windows on the outside. I mean, who does that, right? I remember doing that. I'm like, why are we cleaning the windows on the outside? But we would do those kind of things. And, and we spent all day cleaning the house, cleaning things I had never even like, thought of cleaning before. And we did it. But I gotta admit, it was never fun, or typically never fun. But I have to admit that after all that work and all the cleaning was done, it felt kinda nice, didn't it? it feels kinda nice to you look in your room and you see the floor a different color <laughs> because it was vacuumed or cleaned. You see like your shelves a different color or all those kinds, it feels good to be in a clean house. Because you got rid of and you cleaned up things that accumulated for all sorts of time. And you don't realize you've been living in some pretty dusty, dirty stuff. You can find things. You, you discover that, oh, here's the sock I've been missing for months. Or here's the toys that I, 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 I didn't, I, I lost. Or all those kinds of things. You find those kind of things. The purpose of it, besides the fact that mom had enough, right? Mom's like, all right, enough we got to clean the house. The purpose of it is that it needs to be done because it's been long enough. The mess has accumulated. The dirt has been accumulated. And you've been living in it all that time. It's time to get rid of things. It's time to change things. The The title of today's message is Cleaning House. Because Jesus is going to come onto the scene in Jerusalem... And he's going to be making statements. And he's not concerned about making enemies when he does it. He's going to, go, he's going to straight call people out on their turf, or what they think is their turf. He's going to call people out for what's happening, for what's going on. So you have you turn to your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. And as you've been with us for this whole time, our journey in Mark has been building up to this week in Jesus' ministry. And the passage we're going to look at today is normally covered in what's called the Passion Week, right? Or Palm Sunday. That is the week of, the last week of Jesus' ministry going into his crucifixion, the Passion Week. Well, we're going to take the next five months, Right? This is going to lead us into Easter Sunday. So we're going to take these five months to cover these last seven days of Jesus' ministry going into uh, the cross. And you're looking like we're going to take that long to cover the last part of Jesus' ministry. Trust me, there's going to be a lot to cover. So we're going to take a look at that um, for the remainder leading into Easter. But Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has yet ever sat. sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, all four gospel accounts include Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. So, this really gives an emphasis of the importance and significance of this scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And I, I don't know if you remember, remember, but last Palm Sunday, I covered this triumphant entry, right? Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And um. I covered it a little bit more in depth, but if you want to kind of revisit it, you can go on the YouTube page, the church Facebook page, and, and or the audio podcast, and you can kind of go back and listen to it. But I'll just touch on it briefly in this moment, and that there are three significant elements to this scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem. One is the people laying down and waving the palm branches as Jesus goes. The second, the people crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the third, that we see that Jesus is riding on a colt going into Jerusalem. So three very significant elements of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Why is it significant? Well, the waving of the palm branches, that was a, a very much a sign of homage to a victor. Think of this picture of a victorious king coming into his city. And the people waving the branches before their victorious king as they're coming in. Okay, so that's the kind of scene. But the waving of the palm branches was also a regular part of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a festival of thanksgiving to God for delivering Israel through their wandering in the wilderness. And so during this celebration, they would wave these branches in the temple And they would sing, the people would sing from a collection, a specific collection of psalms called the Hallel. Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And so these were sung each morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles. So this waving of the palm branches. And there was this singing. And they would sing, the, the cry of Hosanna was sung in the temple that word hosanna is hebrew it's an exclamation in other words saying save now please save so they were saying lord save now one of the psalms that would would be sung is psalm 118 verse 25 and 26 O Lord, do save, Hosanna. We beseech thee, O Lord. We beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So we see the people kind of quoting from this psalm, Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it's interesting in that psalm, and the previous verses, in verse 22, is also very relevant to the scene of Jesus coming in. Verse 22 of Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So it's interesting, the people, as they're singing Hosanna, they're citing this psalm but they don't realize the significance of that psalm and how it is forecasting, foretelling of the coming of the Lord and Jesus fulfilling this picture, this scene. We see Jesus riding on a young donkey as well. This also is a picture Jesus is fulfilling from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet says, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem!' Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, all of Old Testament scripture is pointing to the scene that the Messiah king, the future king of Israel, will be coming onto the scene. And so, Jesus is fulfilling this picture of the coming king, this coming Messiah. So we see in Mark's narrative as we've been looking at it and been mentioning to you all, there's this shift in the narrative of Mark. Last week, we saw blind Bartimaeus, right? He cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, this messianic title, have mercy on me, this reference to him. And at that time, When Bartimaeus is crying out for mercy, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. We don't see Jesus silencing Bartimaeus. Why is that significant? Remember in Mark, throughout our time in Mark, Jesus has quieted down this recognition, this identification of who he is. He silenced even the demons identifying him as the Holy One. But here, Mark, at this point, Jesus doesn't silence Bartimaeus. He allows Bartimaeus to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And here Jesus, he's making a self-declaration of who he is. He is fulfilling the prophecy of the coming king, the coming Messiah. And here's the people. The people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, he doesn't command the people to do it. They do it themselves. But Jesus doesn't silence them either. He allows them to declare this. So his entrance into Jerusalem is sending a loud message. He may not be entering as like this victorious king, as people may have thought, this victorious king coming in. But he has a loud message to proclaim so Jesus arrives at the temple, and we see in Mark, he looks around, and it was late in the day, so he leaves for Bethany. Verse 12, and on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it to eat. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for fig. And he answered and said to it, "May no one ever eat from fruit or eat fruit from you again." And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables on the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. So here Mark presents two trips into Jerusalem and into the temple, right? The first time Jesus enters on the donkey and the people are crying, Hosanna, he goes into the temple. And in Mark's account, he looks around and it turns evening and he goes back to Bethany. But here we have the second time Jesus goes on into Jerusalem and into the temple. And this time, it's a little bit different. Now, let me set the scene of what we're looking at here. When it says that he's going into into the temple, it's not like how we just walked into our church building, right? We come into one single building and we go into the church. The temple itself was very massive, a vast area. And you can see, here's a a model of, of what it may have looked like, okay? The temple grounds were massive and there was a courtyard of the Gentiles, where Gentiles would go, could go no further there, but they could come to worship God. The Gentiles, could, they weren't able to have access in. So you can see on the outside, there's a, there's a label on the picture, the court of the Gentiles. That's the outer court's area. And that's the backdrop of what we're looking at. What we're seeing, the scene of Jesus coming to the temple, that's most likely where all this is happening. Okay, So Jesus, seeing the whole scene... And what happens here? He goes and he's turning over the tables of the money changers. And he dries out those who are buying and selling. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. So, all this is happening, most likely, in the court of the Gentiles in this area. Now, people have often abused and misunderstood this passage. They use this passage of Jesus overturning the tables, and they use it as as an example. Like, well, see, Jesus was angry, so I can be angry too, right? And a lot of times people use this passage to justify righteous anger on different things. But they may not understand why Jesus was so offended. Why did Jesus react this way when he goes into the court of Gentiles and he sees these merchants selling these animals that would be used for the sacrifices in the temple? Why? They have money changers, and they had money changers there because when people would come in, they would bring foreign coin, and so they couldn't use the foreign coin to pay the temple tax, so they had to have the exchange. They had to get exchanged a foreign coin into the coin that was accepted to be able to give to the temple. So why did Jesus do these things? Well, notice what Jesus says. He says, And he began to teach them and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now what Jesus is doing here, he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. And when Jesus quotes this, he's not just doing sound bites, right? You know, a lot of people just, like, grab quotes, grab, you know, verses that they like and just kind of throw it into a context. But Jesus isn't just doing sound bites. He's not just getting these single verses here to apply to his context. He's bringing up these passages to make a point. In Isaiah 56, verse 5, Isaiah Or the Lord is making a remarkable declaration through the prophet Isaiah. The Lord declares here his house will be a house of prayer for the nations, to the foreigners, to the Gentiles. Verse 5 in Isaiah, he says, To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Why is this significant? God is declaring to Israel those Gentiles, all the foreigners, will be welcome into my house. It will be a house of prayer for all people. There will be no separation from the foreigners, the Gentiles. And those who I called my people. You see that in verse 3. They will be made joyful in the Lord's house of prayer. The Lord's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. For the Gentiles as well. If you read further in the passage in Isaiah, God speaks against the unfaithfulness of his people in the rest of the passage. And you see, read in Isaiah, you have this contrast where God's saying, his house is open for the Gentiles to come who will worship him. But then later he speaks against the unfaithfulness of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8, the Lord calls out the abominations of Israel, their idolatry and their wickedness, and Israel refused to heed the Lord's call for righteousness. In verse 8, "...behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations?" Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So here you see this picture, this portrait. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is speaking against idolatrous, wicked Israel. They have refused to heed God's warning. And he's saying, and you are going to come into my temple? Let's call them my name and act like everything is okay. Like what you're doing is right in my eyes. So Jeremiah declares the Lord's judgment against the wickedness and evil of the priests of Jerusalem and his temple. So it's interesting that these two passages that Jesus refers to, the backdrop of these passages is Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. The prophets are speaking against Israel for what they've been doing in the temple of the Lord, their wickedness, their evil. At the same time, God is saying to the Gentiles, My house will be welcome to you as a house of prayer for all the nations. So it's interesting. Here's this backdrop that Jesus is speaking. He's speaking in the temple, and he's speaking to these people, these people that have allowed these things to happen in the temple. And is bringing them back to the days of Isaiah and the days of Jeremiah. So here's the court of the Gentiles. This space in the temple where they were able to come and worship God. Instead, the chief priests, what have they done? They've made that area that could have been a place of worship into a marketplace, they made it into a marketplace of profit. And undoubtedly, there was some shady business going on as well. Animals used for sacrifice were being sold. Money changes were there. People were using this this space to come and go. This area that could have been a place of worship for the Gentiles became a busy marketplace. So the house of the Lord was to be a place of prayer for all. And the chief priests allowed it to be a space for profit. It took away that, that space. So what does Jesus do? He goes and he drives out the merchants and the people out of the temple, that, that space. Those who were supposed to be spiritual authority, teachers of the law, representatives for the people and to God, and representatives of God for the people, allowed this corruption in the house of the Lord. So that's the scene of what's taking place. You say, well, what about the fig tree? What's the deal with the fig tree? Right before he goes to the temple the second time, he sees upon this fig tree. He was hungry. He goes up to it to see if there was any figs to eat. And it wasn't necessarily the season to, to eat of the edible figs. There was leaves, but there was no figs. So what does Jesus do? He cursed and said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So what happens? And as they were passing by in the morning the next day, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. Now we're going to look at Jesus' response next week. We'll see his response to the disciples next week. But you may be thinking, why did Jesus curse this fig tree? Was Jesus like hangry or something, you know? He was hungry and a little, little agitated and didn't find any fruit. Is that why Jesus cursed the fig tree? No, it wasn't because he was hangry. He wasn't grumpy. That wasn't the point Jesus was making. We see that the fig tree, Jesus declared to never bear fruit the next day. What happened? They found it completely withered from the roots all the way up. Now, what's significant about this? This is the only miracle we see Jesus doing that we could consider would be destructive, right? Throughout this whole time, Jesus has been healing. Resurrect, he resurrected uh, the child. He's been healing all these people. He, he restored a withered man's hand. If you're reading Mark, you may have expected Jesus go walk up to this tree that's barren and say, may you bear fruit. And we bear fruit, right? But we don't see that. What does Jesus do? I mean, you never eat, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it withers. And you see the next day, it was completely withered away. And some people are confused by this, and they wonder, what, what's the deal with this? It can be confusing until you understand. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is used as a metaphor for Israel. You see it in Hosea 9:10 and Micah chapter 7, verse 1. And specifically, they are a fig tree that has no fruit. Has no fruit. In Jeremiah chapter 8, the Lord speaks out against the sin of Judah and Jerusalem: that they have been in rebellion and idolatry, and they are not bearing fruit. So, when Jesus sees this fig tree, he sends a powerful message. This whole scene of the fig tree and what he's doing in the temple is a powerful message. He's driving, he's pointing out to the scribes and the chief priests in the temple You have led God's people astray, you have profaned the temple, the Lord's house. And just as we've seen Jesus do in previous passages, he associates the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day, back to their forefathers in the times of the prophets. When the prophets spoke out against the priesthood then, of their wickedness, what they have allowed in God's temple. So God's sending a message to them. What you're doing, what you have made this temple now, It's like what your forefathers did in those days. And to the disciples who sees this fig tree, what Jesus did to the fig tree, it's a symbol of what the state of Jerusalem and Israel is that day. Jesus came into Jerusalem and into the temple and showed that they profaned the house of the Lord and it echoes the sins of their forefathers. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on faith, prayer, and forgiveness next week in his response. But you may think, what do we get from this? What what are we to to hold on to in this passage? And there's two things that stood out to me as I I re-studied and re-looked at this passage. Two things. The first thing that stood out to me. Jesus came to serve to save. He came to serve to save. When the people sang out, Hosanna, they probably didn't fully realize what they were singing. Lord, save, save now. Here's this picture of Jesus, the king, eventually going to be enthroned. He's coming riding on a donkey, but he's coming to serve. He's coming to serve to save the lost from sin. I don't know if we fully grasp this picture. The Son of God coming, and He's coming to save the lost. It's interesting, we have these elections, you know, we had elections a couple weeks ago. And it still amazes me how people look to these political figures, these elected officials, to be like the savior of societal ills, right? Of all that's wrong in society. They look into these people these flawed individuals, as if they're going to just make all things better. And as we, we do that, and we look at famous people, we look at celebrities as if they're like these moral figures. We look to them for like this inspiration of how to make our lives better. And yet here is the Son of God. He's coming, and he came to serve, to save to save the lost. It reminds me how much we truly need Jesus. We don't need the next president as much as we need Jesus. We don't need these celebrities, these social media phenoms, like we need Jesus. The second thing I want to to end with that stands out in this passage is that the house of the Lord is a house of prayer and worship for the nations. I love that picture of what Jesus cited in Isaiah, that God's house was always intended to be a house of worship for all the nations to come. Those who would have faith, those who would join themselves with the Lord, who will love the Lord, will be a house of worship, whether you are a Jew or Gentile. But his house would be a house of prayer and worship. Now the temple and our church buildings are not equivalent things in Scripture, right? This is not the temple that we see in the Old Testament. What is the temple as believers in Christ? We are the temple of God, right? As believers in Christ. Our church buildings is, where we, is the location in which we gather to worship. This is not the temple of God in the sense. But where we gather together can be the house of worship of where we come together. Whether it's a traditional church building, whether it's a school auditorium or whether it's in someone's home, when we come together, we come together in prayer and worship, right? That's the amazing thing. That's the beauty of, of the body of Christ. Wherever we gather can be a place of worship where all people can come together From all nations, they can come to worship God. But really, what really convicted me here that I want to convey to you all is that whenever we do gather together for worship, that we honor our time of worship as sacred. That wherever we're gathering together for worship, prayer, worship, that we consider that time as sacred. That we have that heart that we're approaching, that the grounds that we're in when we come together to prayer and worship, that's sacred. That's not just a social gathering. There's time for social gathering, right? We have those moments. Afterwards, we may have those moments. But when we come together to worship, let it be a sacred time in our time of church you know these days when we kind of get more casual i mean look i'm wearing jeans and a polo shirt right i'm not in a suit or or in in one of those uh reverend robes and stuff it's not as formalized but i think it's important that we approach our time of worship as sacred and this is for the lord i want to urge us to have that heart whenever we come into worship When someone is praying that we quiet down, we stop our conversations. We say, oh, you know what? We're praying. Service is starting. This is the Lord's time. Our conversation can be put on hold. When we're reading of the word, look, I don't hold what I'm saying as like, I want you to listen to me. I pray that it's God who speaks. It's the reading of his word. And in that time, we say, God, this is your time. You have my ear. You have my attention. This is not about me. It's not about whatever pastor it may be. But God, let it be your word spoken. And so you have my attention. This is your time. Wherever we gather, that it's a time of prayer and worship for the Lord. Because I think if we have that heart, whenever we approach a time of prayer and worship, God, this time is sacred for you. It's not about me. It's about you. I truly believe we will be truly blessed. God will bless our desire to honor him. This is a sacred time whether we're wearing jeans or shorts, whether we have a worship team or not, whether in a church building like this or it looks different, or in someone's home, it's time to pray. It's time to worship. It's time for the reading of the word. God, this is your time. May we honor him like that. I'll end with this. When you clean house, you make way for the new, right? Right? You get rid of old stuff, you clean up, and so you kind of make way for the new. You provide space for the new. You do all that cleaning. And what Jesus is doing, he's cleaning house. He's setting setting the record straight. What's going on here is not it. And I believe, honestly, that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. And I believe that he will remind us of the things that needs to be corrected in our life. And may we have his ear or may he have his ear. No, may he have our ear. (laughs) May he have our attention. God, if there's something that needs to be cleaned out that's distracting me from worshiping you, that's preventing me from following you with all my heart, Lord, may you drive that out so that I may worship you freely. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, We thank you that you are worthy to be praised. That, Lord, you have opened it up for all nations to come and worship you. And, Lord, I pray that there may be nothing in this church, in our church community, that would hinder anybody from worshiping you. no matter where they come from. And Lord, I pray that there'll be nothing in our lives that hinder us from worshiping the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who came to save. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.